0: Hi, I'm Stephanie von Latke and welcome to Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. Episode 11 is called Past Wars and Today's Peace Fellows. I'm joined by my co-host, Steve Sadman to talk about Remembrance Day, Canadian veterans, Macron's controversial comments about NATO and the crisis in Bolivia. For our main segment, Steve had the opportunity to interview the winners of the Peace with Women Fellowship awarded by the Halifax Security Forum. Steve then closes off with a few words on how his research travel has allowed him to visit war museums and memorials all over the world.
1: Stephanie, did you do anything for Remembrance Day?
0: Yes, I did. I was in Kingston for Remembrance Day. What about you?
1: I was in class. But uh, between the Vimy Gala and all the news stories, I followed up pretty closely. And uh, I got to say, the gala was very moving. Uh, as they mentioned, not just uh, a Juno soldier who was a present at the gala and also a Korean veteran, but the Silver Cross mother whose son died in Afghanistan in 2007. So it was a very moving moment at the gala, and it was a very moving weekend, I thought, uh, given the coverage of of this remembrance, uh, given that this is all now 101-plus years after the war ended.
0: Yes, and, and it was chilly yesterday. I walked to the Cross of Sacrifice by Lake Ontario with a nice headwind, Then there was a service at the 21st Battalion Monument in Kingston City Park, and that was followed by a ceremony at the Vimy Cross in the Princess of Wales Own Regiment Armouries. That last part was indoors, and I may have had a quick dram to warm up at that point.
1: I assume that next year you'll be wearing uni- a uniform for it?
0: Well, that's the thing, because as we arrived at the armories, no one could feel their face, hands or toes. The soldiers on parade did a really fantastic job, but I cannot, for the life of me, understand why they didn't put their top coats on. I don't know if it's because honors are not displayed on outerwear, so maybe that's the reason, or maybe it's tradition. I'll, I'll definitely ask next time, but I think that I will be wearing mine if it's cold uh, next year.
1: It's an interesting time of year. I'm always struck, as an American living in Canada, how the two countries uh, treat this day differently. And I'm, I think that the way the Canadians handle it is, is much better in terms of the, the focus on remembering and the way you know people wear poppies and all the rest of it i just i just feel it more here than i ever did in the united states and my daughter who was mostly raised here when she went to university in the united states just found it very very strange to be walking around on november 11th without much fanfare much about the lives lost in these in the wars that we fought.
0: Yeah, and there was a few articles on whether or not Remembrance Day should be a statutory holiday. There was a poll conducted by Ipsos showing that 90% of Canadians support November 11 being a statutory holiday. So I was wondering what you thought about that as a new Canadian.
1: Well, my first response is that I think if you ask Canadians if they want another day off, (laughs) they would say yes, regardless of the the motivation. But I I do think it makes sense. I I think that that would help cement the the idea and give more people an opportunity to participate. So I think it it makes sense. Uh, I do know at Carleton, I ever since I've been here. It's a teaching day. They do have an event uh, at 11 o'clock every every year, but it's a sort of a deviation from the days of, of focusing on coursework. So having a day off makes sense to me. You?
0: I Well, I'm torn because on the one hand, Remembrance Day is something that I would like to share with my family, my kids especially. I'm on the one side of town for Remembrance Day while my kids are at a different ceremony at school. And their school does a great job explaining what Remembrance Day is all about. So maybe they will pay more attention if it's coming from their teachers or guest speakers rather than from their mother. So I'm a little torn.
1: Fair enough. Uh, It's interesting, though, that the, the timing of this and other events because... We've both been to events that deal with veterans. One of the CDSN partners is the Canadian Institute for the Military Veterans and Health Research, which is uh, was started as a partnership grant and now become a, a much bigger thing where they have scientists and social scientists working on issues related to veterans health and the health of uh those are still in service, and so they had a big event a couple of weeks ago in Ottawa, the, their forum, and the uh, display of research was most impressive. They're really making a lot of progress on all kinds of things, and they're getting all kinds of money from the government because the government understands that it's vulnerable on this issue. That that we need to take care of our veterans. They've you know given their lives and their bodies and their minds to us to for. The national interest. And so we owe a responsibility to take care of them afterwards. And so SimVar does a great job in promoting research and, in, and not just promoting it, but coordinating it, producing a whole lot of new research that is aiming to do all different kinds of things. And it was a very impressive display of research, I got to say. I understand that there was an event at Queens as well.
0: Yes. Well, SimVar, that institute is based at Queens and they have wonderful directors and David Pedler, Stéphanie Belanger and, and Heidi Cram. And we over at the Center for for International and Defense Policy have been organizing for the past three years a workshop for women veterans. So I don't know if you've noticed this, but this year when it comes to media coverage leading up to Remembrance Day, there was a bigger focus on women veterans. I noticed this in the Globe and Mail, but also on Radio-Canada platforms. And uh, we have a a project on women veterans at at the Center for International Defense Policy. And this workshop that I just mentioned is meant to pair women veterans with mentors and also feature some panels on military to civilian professional transitions, because many people who leave the military get a second career after. So we acted upon research conducted in the U.S. which showed that In-person coaching and mentorship is a key factor for a successful transition, which really contrasts what is currently being on offer, which is a lot of online services.
1: Yeah, I find that the online stuff these days is, is something that governments and universities reach out to as, as sort of their solution to the problems. So we'll do some online training or provide yeah. some online stuff, but I just don't think that covers it. I think that transitions, as well as helping people with PTSD and all the rest of these things, require interaction. It requires human-to-human contact. So I'm hoping that, that we do can do better than just have online transition yeah. systems.
0: Yeah. And also recognizing that the veteran population is changing. The demographics of that population have shifted a lot. I think that many people who think of veterans may think of veterans from World War One or World War II and, and not necessarily veterans from the more recent wars. And so that was part of our research question as well, is, is to understand how that veteran population has changed and We conducted a bunch of focus groups uh, in Kingston, but also in in Petawawa, in in Trenton and in Ottawa. And what we found is that for the women that we interviewed, there are certain challenges that are unique to them. One of them has to deal with just recognition. This is uh, echoing some of the, the, the profiles that were in the Globe over the weekend, but we saw similar things in our focus groups where women are often met with skepticism when they identify themselves as veterans. An example that comes up often is that when driving around with their veteran license plates, people ask, oh, uh, was your husband in the military? So greater public awareness of women's contributions to a war might be needed, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. Uh, online, on Twitter, I think there's the Canada forces in the United States had a good set of tweets about female veterans that highlighted this. I jumped in and threw, and also Michelle Lang, who was a journalist who lost her life in Afghanistan. Because when we think about Remembrance Day, we should probably also think about the the folks who also die in these wars who are related to these events. One of the things that happens now with whole government efforts in places like Afghanistan, you end up having civil servants and journalists be put in harm's way, and and they pay a price too. So I don't want to say we should remember everybody and everything on that day, but I do think that we need to think a little bit more about some of the other folks involved in these wars and the price they pay.
0: And this topic is also linked to a question we had from one of our listeners. What can veterans expect in the near future? So I mentioned my research before with women veterans, but what I will say is that for both men and women, transition can be very disorienting. Things that might seem simple on the surface, like finding a place to live or trying to get a family doctor, are things the military looked after before and so all of a sudden as a veteran you have to figure those things out on your own so I think that in the next step as the government thinks through veteran service provision there's going to be an attempt to offer support services for military to civilian professional transition since professional fulfillment is uh, a strong predictor of uh, well-being and and strong mental health. A big focus I know on physical and mental health resources and trying to uh, reduce the waiting times and access to those services, and here I'll maybe add my own suggestion, which is better communication around who veterans are to not only showcase their diversity, but also to dispel the harmful stereotypes around veterans in general, which can affect their social integration. Something that comes off very strongly from the the coverage leading up to Remembrance Day is how many veterans express feeling misunderstood in the civilian world.
1: Well, for the future, the liberals did promise more free counseling up to $3,000 before they have to file a claim and to automatically approve the most common disability application. So that, that makes some sense. I do think that there's more that the government can do. And I, th- I think that if they can reduce the paperwork that gets in the way of individuals getting the disability help that they need, that makes a great deal of sense. I'm not sure anything else is going to happen. I do think that because it's a minority government, doing things for veterans will be probably one of the issues that will sail through. It's going to be hard for any government, you know, the other parties to oppose that kind of stuff. So the liberals could get some easy wins by building support from the conservatives or the NDP or both on – Programs that help veterans. I think that, that's these are the no-brainer issues that that would help to build some momentum towards the government lasting beyond a few days or weeks or months.
0: Mm-hmm. And and something that had already been started with SSC Strong, Secure, and Engaged is more focus on planning for the transition. So they introduced something called the Journey, which really looks at each phase of the the career cycle of a military service member. And one thing that is obvious is that very little was done to plan ahead for the transition. So I think that's another major area of focus.
1: Speaking of transitions, President (laughs) uh, Emmanuel Macron (laughs) has decided to announce that NATO might be going under a transition with his comment that the organization has suffered a brain death with the withdrawal of American leadership. Given that we've both written on NATO, we probably have opinions on this. What's yours?
0: Well, his remarks will uh, make for an interesting leaders' summit in London early December. Not that we would expect anything less with Trump attending. Every NATO event that Trump has attended has been highly mediatized, more so than in the past, I would argue. Getting back to Macron's comments, I think that his comments might have been less about NATO and more about his desire to see greater strategic autonomy in Europe. It's a theme that he has long championed. So it seems that he took advantage of the crisis in northeastern Syria and the withdrawal of US forces to make a statement, make a bold statement about European defense. We can't forget here that he is the architect of the European Intervention Initiative, a French-led effort to set up a European intervention force with a common doctrine, but outside of the EU structures. So, yes, it, it does include the UK. Recently, Norway and Sweden joined the EII or EII or EI2. It's got uh, many different names. So there are now 12 states signed on to this initiative. So that's the same number of states that NATO had at the moment of its creation seven years ago. Ironic.
1: Or accidental or on purpose. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, my first reaction to this was that, It's as if somebody said the emperor had no clothes. That is that we've known for three years that Trump hated NATO, that the only thing he cares about NATO is is getting paid, which misunderstands the whole 2% thing anyway, that he doesn't see allies as being allies, really. He sees the United States as being a sucker for helping to defend other countries. And I think that in the past year with the departure of Secretary of Defense Mattis, the Europeans have started to lose their wishful thinking that Mattis would be able to save them. And I think that the Europeans are realizing that, that NATO is on shaky ground these days with the United States led by a unilateralist and an isolationist like Donald Trump. Macron's not saying anything that we don't already know. But that he's saying it A, before the summit, and B, as a part of an effort to try to gin up support for a European alternative, is the key pieces. That France, Macron, and many French leaders before him have wanted to supplant NATO in Europe. And Sarkozy was one of the rare exceptions who sought NATO, wanted France to be prominent within NATO as opposed to substitute other organizations for NATO. So the key thing is, is that Macron's not getting much support from Germany and any effort to do anything in Europe requ- requires French and German support. And if they can't get together on this, then you're not going to really see much of a third way or new alternative. It does make sense in a time where the United States is both declining and declining its support for NATO, that the Europeans should try to hedge and find other ways to provide security for themselves and to build coalitions to deal with the problems they face. So, but almost every European effort that's been done has been built on the back of American infrastructure, of American bases, of American airplanes, of American satellites, logistics, and, uh, High tech support. So these countries are going to have to figure out a way to either get by without those things, find ways to fund those things. So that way they can do these things without the United States. And that would be very hard to do given everybody's constrained defense budgets and how challenged they are in trying to just get stuff done right now but it would require new commitments on the part of these countries to spend more money, and I just don't see that
0: happening. I mean, perhaps we should also mention that it's not Macron's only controversial move in the past month. He also blocked EU enlargement, vetoing North Macedonia and Albania's formal accession talks.
1: And that's a really good point, because if you care about European stability, then you probably should be thinking about what to do in the Balkans. People forget that the Kosovo War was almost not really about Kosovo, but about Macedonia whatever its name is these days, Northern Macedonia.
0: North Macedonia.
1: Yeah, I know. It's, I'm still pet peeve for me. The Kosovo War was fought in part because of the threat that the Kosovo conflict presented to, to Macedonia. The conflict of Macedonia could embroil Greece, Bulgaria, and Turkey into a conflict. That was the problem in 1998, 1999. These days, that may not be quite a problem, but Albania, Macedonia, they have done a fair amount to try to fit into European institutions and their whole belonging in NATO is sort of premised in part on belonging into other European institutions such as the European Union. So the French blocking this, is, or Macron blocking this, is not really a positive move in, in, for European stability. So on one hand, he, he's talking about one initiative that would help the Europeans be more stable and secure, and in another move he's doing the opposite. So Macron himself is not necessarily the best initiator or planner for Europe. European security, and we have to raise some eyebrows about what he's trying to do, even if the original statement about Trump is dead on.
0: All right, well, we will probably revisit this topic after the Leaders Summit in London. I know you will not be attending because you are also hosting something big at Carlton.
1: That's right. Thanks for the plug. We are having the Year Head Conference, it's an annual conference at the War Museum. It's hosted by Carlton's uh, CSIDS, our Research Center on Defense and Security Stuff. And it's going to take place at the War Museum on December 6th, all day long. And the website will be on our show notes for the, the event. There will be sessions on violent extremism climate change. There'll be a fireside chat on diversity and inclusivity. And then they'll, the day will end with a discussion of a variety of global hotspots. The whole premise of the year ahead is to do exactly that, to look to the year ahead and suggest to the, to the people in town and beyond, what are the threats out there? What are the dynamics uh, what should we be thinking about? Last year, we had uh, sessions about election security, and we had an election last year. I'm hoping that we can find somebody for the Global Hotspots to talk about the decline of American democracy, but that's something that we're, we're currently working on. But it's a great event, uh, and it's also a great networking event. You get to meet other people in town. We we definitely have some time in the schedule to, to meet other people across the various agencies and government. And uh, it really is a very much of a, a CDSN kind of event in terms of trying to build bridges across the various communities. So we're looking forward to that. Again, that's December 6th. It's at carlton.ca slash C that's C S I D S, the year ahead, 2020. And we hope to see people there.
0: Excellent. And so you mentioned your conference will be featuring some of today's hotspots. Will Bolivia be on the agenda? Did we just witness a coup in our hemisphere?
1: That's a good question. Uh, Bolivia is not going to be on the uh, schedule, but we can talk about it here. A president who has already violated his own institutions, there, there's term limits in in Bolivia but uh, for two term limits, but this president served four, Morales served four terms. But now with protests tests in the streets, the military kindly touched him on the shoulder and said, it's time for you to move on. And he is apparently on his way to Mexico. And mm-hmm. so this raises questions about whether it's a coup, whether it's a revolt, what's going to happen next. There's a really sharp piece in the New York Times written by Max Fisher and featuring a couple of uh, political scientists I know, Nanahal Singh and Jay Uffelder. They're really smart people who study coups and military politics. And I think the big answer to the question of whether it's a coup or a revolt is, well, it depends on what happens next. If the military sticks around and dominates the political system, then it's a coup. And if they step aside and a civilian process leads to a civilian leadership and then new elections, then it's a revolt.
0: And right now, it's not really clear who's next in the line of succession since both the president and vice president have resigned.
1: This is a complicated situation, and there's not really good guys on either side because Morales, while he had stuck around for four terms, was also the first indigenous president of Bolivia and had done a lot to give voice to those groups in Bol- Bolivian society who had been left out. There had been a fair amount of economic growth. Bolivia had been doing fairly well, but four terms is a long period of time for any president. It seemed to be the case that in this last election there were irregularities that were identified from by outsiders. And that is one of the things that is often leads to coups or leads to the intervention of in the military and to revolts is when people are suspicious about the election. And it turns out they were about this one with good reason. Morales leaving, we don't know what's gonna happen next, but it does bear watching because uh, We want to see more democracies and not more autocracies in our hemisphere. This is part of a larger question about the stability of democracy uh, around the world in the 21st century that the last part of the 20th century saw steady movement towards more and more democracy. And in the past 10, 15 years, we've seen backsliding in places like Hungary, Poland, and elsewhere. And we don't want to see Bolivia become an authoritarian regime because that just helps to cement this trend.
0: All right. Well, we have great things ahead on this episode. Your interviews with Peace with Women Fellowship awardees from the Halifax Security Forum.
1: Yes, these are 11 women who are all around the level of colonel or their equivalent in NATO and ANZUS countries. So it's a couple of Americans, a Canadian, a bunch of Europeans and uh, representatives from both Australia and New Zealand. These are women who are spending essentially uh, a month traveling together two weeks in the United States, two weeks in Canada to get American and Canadian perspectives, both within and outside of government on security issues. So they discuss some of their experiences of being in Washington, D.C. and also going to Silicon Valley to talk about the problems that everybody's facing and how people see these problems differently and how best to adjust to them.
0: Excellent. Can't wait to listen.
1: Uh, thanks for the chat, Steph. I saw you at the gala. I'm going to see you in a couple of days in Montreal for a couple of different events. And uh, we'll have more to talk about in our next podcast so, if you've got questions for us, please hit us up on Twitter at CDSNRCDS, or you can do it directly to me or Steph, or you can email us at cdsn.rcdsoutlook.com.
2: I am Colonel Deborah Levitt from the United States Air Force. Currently, the director of human capital for the United States Space Command.
3: And I'm Eleanor Buchalto Sullivan. I'm an Air Commodore of the Royal Netherlands Air Force, and for um, my job is I'm being the commander of Cyber Command of the Armed Forces.
4: I'm Lieutenant Colonel Joanna Polakowskine uh, from Lithuania. I'm an army officer, and currently I'm a senior instructor at the Staffs uh, Officers Course. In military academy. I'm Colonel Lisanne Martel from the Royal Canadian Air Force, and I'm currently the director of Air Force
5: professional development, both for officer and non-commissioned members.
6: So I'm uh, Colonel Dr. Lale Bartoszek from the uh, Joint Medical Service in Germany. I'm currently working at the Federal Ministry of Defence um, as chief of branch for recruitment and um, marketing.
7: Colonel uh, Sören leflock pilot of Locke, the French Air Force, currently posted in Paris in the headquarters at a joint level.
8: Captain Rachel Durbin from the Australian Navy, I'm an engineer, I work in our um, Navy Capability Development and my job at the moment is the Director of the Future Force Lifecycle
9: Engineering. Captain Fiona Shepard from the British Royal Navy. I'm a logistics officer by trade and my job is to uh, support all, run, all the Royal Navy uh, units around the world 24-7 with uh, logistics capability.
10: Uh, Brigadier Lisa Ferris, I'm the Director of Defence Legal Services. I'm in the New Zealand Army and the uh, m- most near equivalent in Canadian terms would be the JAG for
11: the armed forces. And My name is Paz Magat, I'm a civilian and I'm the Director of the Peace with Women Fellowship.
1: How much need is there for a JAG in the uh, New Zealand Army when there's only like 10,000 people in the military, how much trouble can they get into?
10: I think a JAG is more than just uh, soldiers, sailors and air personnel getting into trouble, but military justice is the foundation for the armed forces. You know, without disciplined a disciplined armed force, you wouldn't have a successful armed force, and that holds true no matter what the size of the armed forces, whether it's 10,000 or whether it's 100,000.
1: I, I had a really good experience, I guess almost 10 years ago now, where I was doing research on NATO in Afghanistan, and I went to Australia and New Zealand to talk to some partners of the effort to figure out whether there was a difference between partners and members. And and I really benefited from the fact that it was a small military because I talked to five colonels about the Afghanistan effort and I just needed to talk to those five colonels to get really a good picture of of what was going on there. I really uh, enjoyed my time in Wellington, so I I don't mean to pick on the small size of of, of, uh, New Zealand. Paz, uh, what is this fellowship and and how did this come to be and how did you pick these people?
11: Well, the program was launched in 2017 by the Halifax International Security Forum as a way to really put their uh, money where their mouth was. At every Halifax International Security Forum, there was a panel on gender and inclusivity, and they said this needs to be more than an hour uh, spent on an annual basis. We could do more than this. And that's why they launched the fellowship. Uh, We ran it for the first time in 2018 with seven fellows uh, from across uh, the NATO uh, alliance. And we really aimed to develop a program that expands upon the the knowledge and networks that they already have to expose them beyond the silos that they can easily get into given their uh, job descriptions and to also create a space for women at senior levels to be able to network with each other because that's such a rarity in and of itself. When you attend the Halifax International Security Forum and you see this number of women in their uniform walking together, there's also sort of a subversive message that we're sending saying that, guess what, there are more voices who can come to this table. And we're trying to visually display that message as well as the substantive contributions they make at the event itself. Yeah,
1: I can't help but think of some of those panels I've seen on gender where they have four men. And so it's it's the idea of having this phalanx of women in, in, in uniform walking around I think would be most impressive. Lisa, so... What has been sort of one of the big takeaways from your travels thus far?
10: Well, I think, Ed, you know, the networking and just the relationship building amongst the group has been fantastic. But other key highlights uh, for me have been, obviously, the concepts of gender and identity that we learnt in the US. The issues of technology, data and security issues uh, seem to be uh, magnifying exponentially. In fact, one of the, the key sort of phrases that I heard that uh, cyber and data security is not just an issue for the military and defence industry, it's an issue for society as a whole. And that really resonated with me, that it's not just people in uniform that have to be concerned about it, it's, it's the whole nation.
1: A lot of people see that the threat to information and security is actually emanating from, from Silicon Valley, whether it's Google or Facebook or Twitter and how they treat information. Did you get a sense that they were explaining well their stances on these things, or did you feel they were defensive about, uh, about the situation?
10: You know, they were very open and um, free and frank with us, but I think that, as with anything, there's two sides to every story. You know, there are those that want to develop the best and brightest technology, but ha- that has to go hand in glove with the security sector. And, of course, the legal framework has to underpin that. And that, for me, as a lawyer, is, is of greatest interest. So did
1: you see a lot of legal problems while you were there?
10: There are a lot of legal challenges, <laughs> definitely. I'm a lawyer, we pick out legal challenges all the time, but there are also those that are working actively to provide solutions, and I think that's where we need to get to, not just to identify problems and challenges and concerns, but also look to the next step and say, what are the solutions to these?
1: And, has do these women help you identify for you sort of the, the challenges that, that you're facing and as part of an organiser of the conference, that has, have they made you rethink how the forum should be handled?
11: Absolutely. I mean, you know, we like to think of ourselves at Halifax International Security Forum as setting the agenda of of topics that need to be discussed uh, on an international scale. But the fellowship also informs us because we are with them for an extended period of time. It's not just conversations at meetings. It's conversations over meals and um, in the bus from point A to point B on airplanes that we have a little bit more of an ear to the ground uh, from a very multinational perspective that we contribute back into the Halifax International Security Forum itself uh, to try to help shape those conversations in a more uh, inclusive manner.
1: What have you learned about leadership? from
11: these incredible leaders? I think leadership uh, that we've seen through this program, not just this year, but last year as well, is that there are many different ways to define what leadership can be. Um, Over the course of the program, the phases of leadership that we see amongst the fellows is also a lot of fun to witness. In the beginning, people who are used to being in charge all the time have to take a step back, and that's a hard thing for them to do sometimes. And they have to learn to trust each other, that things are going to go well because they're in it together as a team. We've learned a lot about, you know, do you lead from behind, from up front? Where's the most effective approach? And as somebody who is not a military person... I've had to learn how to interact with serious leaders in in this capacity, uh, which is a lot of fun to try to navigate, but I think everybody showed up to this program with such a positive mindset. I'm really eager to uh, learn things and learn from each other that it seems pretty effortless and you know, I really get to enjoy being part of this program. It's like I I get to go on the fellowship too, (laughs) Um, but learn so much more because of the depth of experience sitting around the table.
1: Fantastic. I want to thank you for organizing uh, this roundtable, essentially, this speed dating of podcast (laughs) interviews. So what are you doing in Canada this week?
12: a lot of mission, or a lot of meetings mainly pr- um focused on the Canadian defense just looking at cuz we already did the US so we spent time in Washington DC met with uh, the folks in the Pentagon met with think tankers uh, just met with people very much involved with the U.S. security aspect. So my uh, anticipation is that we're going to get a lot of the same here in Canada.
1: And so far in Canada you've met with?
13: We just meet, met with Her Excellency the, uh, the General Governor. Uh, we did participate to the ceremony this morning for the 11th of November.
1: Oh, fantastic. And, and mm. do you have any reactions to, to this? Uh, the way the Canadians celebrate, I guess, memorialize this day, is that, I guess the right word? Was was this different from what you were expecting? Is this similar to the way it works in your own country?
13: It's it's kind of uh, the same, but the, the big difference, I would say, is the uh, the silver cross they you have inaugurated, or you already have it for some years. So that's a very good way of showing the mothers or the sisters or the women actually being the victims of the, the fallen Uh, soldiers in the forces.
12: And I would say it's very different because in the U.S., and I had the opportunity to live in England for two years, so got to see how they do their Remembrance Day ceremonies. So... More similar to what I saw in England. In the U.S., it's Veterans Day. We don't even call it Remembrance Day. And it's more, as the name implies, focused on the veterans. So you'll have a lot of parades, um, but nowhere near the same respect. And in terms of laying the wreaths, the poppies, that just doesn't exist I would say in mass in American culture.
1: Well, I'm a dual citizen, exactly. so that is a big difference between the two countries. Why did you join this program? You wandered around uh, North America for three weeks.
13: I was actually uh, just told that you have been picked to be the Nor- <laughs> Norway's representative to the program. I don't think it's uh, well, not that many women at that level in Norway anyway. So that the way of being visible already by working in Oslo, uh, uh, I know I'm very visible, so I have a good network, and I'm very happy that they actually sent me to this program. Uh, It was a little bit
12: different for me. I think the U.S., from what I've picked up talking with the folks who run the program and some of the selection committee is that the U.S. is the one that mainly sends the uh, applications to Halifax International Security Forum, and then the selection committee does their rack and stack and picks. But mine was kind of fun because I was in San Antonio on a two-week trip for Air Force business. It was Friday, April 12th, And I get the email from U.S. Southern Command, which is one of my parent commands, saying, hey, would you be interested in applying for this program? Oh, by the way, the application's due on Monday. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was some fun uh, jumping through hoops to get everything. But it just looked like a phenomenal program. And um, anything I can do to try and bring what we learn here back to my organization, I think, is going to be beneficial.
1: And so what have you learned thus far that you might bring back to your organization?
12: Oh, so much. Uh, We're really – so it's it's perfect timing because something that's being rolled out in the U.S. right now is our uh, the DoD's uh, Department of Defense's um, National Action Plan on Women, Peace, and Security. We had a great great session at the U.S. Institute of Peace that was very much focused on women, peace, and security, and just some of the different ways or different lenses that you can look at it through um, in terms of how to best incorporate. You know these forgotten populations for a lack of a better term um into operational plans where i work at special operations command south we support um, latin america primarily um, so we've got uh, special operations troops working with, you know, the Colombians, the Chileans, um, the Salvadorians, the Hondurans, et cetera. And so trying to get more of that lens to realize that conflict affects more than just the men, that there are other populations that need to be considered. So um, that's one
13: of the big things that I plan to take back.
1: All right. And what, what have you uh,
13: drawn from? Well, uh, there are a lot of things to take back, in fact, but Norway is a small country, so I can't actually adapt everything into the into a small nation. And how we do business is very different from US. But uh, there are aspects when it comes to gender, technology, and how you integrate industry at a very early stage when it comes to development of uh, of requirements. And don't do the business yourself in in the armed forces, but use the industry and save. Time uh, to get the good platforms because they know it the best.
1: What does it mean to be in charge of human capital?
2: (laughs) It's a very good question, and if you have any answers, I would greatly appreciate a response. Um, actually right now it's the stand up of a brand new organization in the in the Department of Defense for the United States. And so basically for now it is setting up the organizational structure and then hiring in all of the talent that we're going to need to set up this organization.
1: And this organization is the Space Force?
2: It's not the Space Force. It is the Combatant Command United States Space. Uh, command. Space Force will be a little bit different It is not yet uh, written into law. but this is the war fighting arm of space, which is uh, which is an avenue that I know m- most other countries are looking at taking. Uh, at this point. Um, but based on the number of vulnerabilities that dependencies that we have on space right now, this is of great interest for um, all of us to pay attention to. And so I think this is a good step forward.
1: I've got friends of mine in the, Na- the D.C. National Security Community who are most concerned about the uniforms for, for Space Force and whether they'll be uh, naval officers or Air Force ranks. What is the best terminology for them? Because they imagine from the past science fiction about what would be the best to go forward. But we'll leave this topic for now. Uh, Eleanor, you work on cyber issues. Has Netherlands been particularly uh, plagued by cyber attacks, or has it been sort of left in the background?
3: No, I think we are being played as a plague as well as any other country is.
1: And I guess one of the questions I have is when Canada is doing cyber defense thinking, it seems to almost be uh, talking about uniform people in uniform and then. Do we have to have the same kind of standards? Because our stereotypes of people who are best at cyber in North America are people who are overweight, sitting in basements, vaping. Do you think that we should have different standards for cyber warriors as for the regular kinds of warriors?
3: Yes, I do. And we are doing that currently. So we're looking very much into different kind of spectrums uh, to find personnel not necessarily will be deployed because they don't uh, meet up to all standards, Uh, But that's okay. Cyber is done behind the desk in the basement sometimes. So we are specifically looking for people who are very intelligent and score high in the autism spectrum. And introverts, uh, that is particularly the group we are focusing on. And so far, we're successful in that.
1: Interesting. Along with the other one we're talking with today, I've been traveling around the United States for a couple of weeks, you just started your trip to Canada. So what did you draw from the American experience? Thus far?
2: So from the American's perspective, um, what I did learn was obviously there's a, a diverse community with many different um, alternative views of what we do as far as national security. Also important for us to remember that as we are making our strategy and as we are addressing the public and developing strategic messaging. So very critical.
1: I'm curious as to which group of people you found to be uh, most out of your expectation? So I
2: would have to say the Silicon Valley trip. The environment there is obviously leading edge of technology and they look at things with a slightly different lens than we do in the national security environment. And so rather than threats perhaps, they see opportunities. And so there are some divergent views of maybe some of the relationships that we have out around the globe. This was my third time in Silicon Valley, so I had a
3: a little bit of different experience, but if I go through my notes, I think that the, what I will take home is that my notes are probably the same as if I would have talked to Dutch people on the same topics. So if there's that much understanding of what is happening in the world, mm-hmm we should do a better job working together.
1: (laughs) Were there any surprises along the way in the travels to the United States? Uh, Well,
3: actually, what surprised me the most is the cohesion of the group. I've never in my career been with so many women uh, so long. And in my head, going on a trip for four weeks with only women, that was set up for failure. <laughs> but we're two weeks down the road now, and I am extremely comfortable with this group. They're really talented, gifted female officers, and it's an honor to travel with them and get to know, get to know them.
1: When you go back and engage in your coursework or in helping the next generation of Air Force officers in their professional development, What are some of the things that you've learned on this trip that you uh, are going to convey to the next generation?
5: It was very interesting uh, what we were exposed to in a different topic and looking at what's the next threat being, you know, China Russia or climate change and, uh, you know, how to include cyber and space. So I've been taking a lot of notes on what is the baseline that we all need, like, in the military to understand, and, and then we all have our specialties. But So that's something I will discuss with the staff, is how much in those topics we need to be familiar with and then let each occupation
4: be more specialized down the road. Yeah, and for myself, I see that we need to improve a little bit program, you know, adding some topics on uh, new topics which influence security situation. And as well, what I found very interesting, what we lack in Lithuania, so it's a mentorship for younger officers or cadets, which is, I think, quite successful example I saw in the, back in the USA.
1: One of the questions we have is, is as women who have uh, come to the not quite the peak yet, you still have more promotions ahead of all of you, that the way you've engaged leadership and the way you've discussed leadership with your colleagues here, that, that you find that women lead differently than men?
5: Well, that's a tough thing for me to answer because I don't think I'm that different. I'm me. So when we ask you know, gender issue, or why is it better with women? It's not that we do things better. We do things different in some things, and it's the combination. A group is much stronger when you have different talent around the table, and the strengths are, are, are different. So as a, as a group, you're much better. So I think we bring a different perspective. We see things differently because we experience things. Just like any individual, if you had a group of men together, they wouldn't necessarily be cloned of each other. I mean, we all bring
4: our culture, our experience. So we do the same from a... Woman perspective for me, what what I think? Yes and no. Yeah, probably the military are united with a common ethos. So men and women they have something in common, and when they do their missions, so they just demand from themselves and go straightward to the end state. But differently, the men and women I think have different cognitive skills, and they just working in a team. They support each other. I think it's uh, the team. Which I designed both for men and women are more successful than only either from men either from women.
1: You've been traveling now for two weeks across the United States. This is your first kind of the first day engaging people in Canada. Was there a particular favorite spot in the United States for either of you?
5: Well, every day uh, we had some good discussion or being the people we met or the things we saw or what we were exposed to. It's hard to pick a thing that was uh, better than everything. I don't think I can because as I go through the, the various lectures, like, oh, yeah, that was interesting. Well, that was beautiful. I mean, it was my first time being in D.C. B.C. D.C. was very interesting. My first time in Silicon Valley in San Francisco, that was interesting. I think what I enjoyed the most was the people we met and the the discussion we had on being nuclear weapons or assessment of future threats or technology and from, uh, you know, the day-to-day of of the Pentagon and the discussion we've had is I've gained so much. Some challenged my baseline understanding, some change shifted my
4: views, and some solidified other things. So it's been a very good program. During the visits, I was focusing at the particular... group of the people, so academic society, people who work for Google, so they are amazingly different from military. I think that every of us do our job and probably the working for a particular business, so gives us or puts on us some stamp, which is good as well. But when we have a chance to meet other people from other groups, so it's good just to see and to find something what's valuable for us.
1: One thing I'm curious about is this experience of traveling around in a multinational group of women being exposed to both the United States and Canada. Are you finding your common military experiences causing you to see things similarly, or your different nationalities and backgrounds causing you to see things differently?
6: So it depends. It's a very diverse group, I think, but it's all women. I never um, spent so much time with um, peers, international peers. And um, I think I appreciate very much the sharing of opinions and of experiences, um, especially of female leadership experiences um, in the different armed forces.
7: Yes, I do agree with uh, Lali. We have um, lots of different backgrounds, but uh, lots of points. And for many topics, we can see that, uh, in fact, we are not alone in our own country, and we, we share lots of uh, and the same values, in fact.
1: What do you find to be the biggest challenge for recruitment these days?
7: Um, In Germany, we try to be
6: an uh, attractive employer, and we do everything for this with employer branding, with marketing, to attract more people. So we have the challenge at the moment um, that our um, numbers of servicemen and women rise again. It's hard to compete with the private sector on this uh, thing, on the one hand for the young people, on the the other hand for specialists.
1: Uh, From what I've described, you're a human resource manager. So what does that entail?
7: Well, in, in fact, um, recruitment is a problem, a major issue that we have to face too. Especially uh, as I uh, deal with uh, flying crews, uh, lots of companies in France uh, uh, want to get these crews, so it's an issue. But one of the most important ones is to keep people in the in the air force. Uh, so we we are really working on this, try to to get uh, better conditions for them inside institutions, take care of them their families, so lots of uh, topics around uh, human resources to just to, to keep this Air Force uh, attractive.
1: One of the challenges I know in Canada, I don't know about other places, is being able to retain women in particular. So why have you uh, two women stayed in your respective militaries? You're, you have advanced educations, you have probably lots of opportunities in the private sector, but you've, you've stayed along to the level of rank of colonel, so you've been there for roughly 20 years?
6: Nearly 25, don't ask the age. <laughs>
7: yeah, <laughs> 22 for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So why have you
1: stay? I
6: love my job.
7: I love my job as well, and uh, I, I do not only have one job, in fact. I have uh, several lives in the in the Air Force. Uh, in the past, I was a pilot. Uh, I just uh, got into operations in, mostly in Africa, Afghanistan, Afghanistan. Afterwards, uh, I work in the headquarters as a um, program officer, so I had some contacts with the procurement agency, with the industries. Then uh, I went abroad. I was posted in the Netherlands, so I work in a multinational environment, then uh, doing human resources, so lots of different jobs, and uh, um, so I'm very happy in, in the Air Force. You
1: know, that's one of the funny things is that, in my experience in working with military officers, is they have that experience where they, they have many, many jobs over the course of their career. And so, on the on one hand it's a very very interesting life on the other hand if your second job is like the best job you ever you will ever have and then you have to leave that job you, know, you can't do the same thing that you fall in love with for instance maybe for a pilot you want to fly but you have to spend a lot of your job not flying obviously since you've stayed you found the change to be better than 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 staying in one spot for a while
6: but every job is very challenging every time I like this very much. It's a kind of adventure, always to go on new topics mm-hmm. and work with new people. And um, I was very lucky always being able to work with uh, great teams.
7: Yeah, same for me. From the beginning, I knew that I would not be a pilot for more than 20 years. So at the very start, I, I knew that once I would have to change and get uh, command and uh, other jobs. So it's not a problem.
1: And in working uh, for the past two weeks with the other women here, have you decided that you want one of their jobs?
6: I think the uh, thing with the space command would be something <laughs> that yeah. I'd li- really appreciate <laughs> and i really like to try out, yes, um, and, and learn more about that. But I think it's uh, very interesting to hear about all the experiences the other women de- uh, made in their careers and um, to share the opinions about their leadership styles. Indeed. Yeah. yeah, exactly.
1: I guess uh, the last question is what I've been asking most of the women is, is, was there a big surprise along the way, that something you didn't expect?
7: No, there were n- not so many uh, surprise. The program is a, a very amazing program, uh, lots of things, and uh, talking about uh, innovation, think tanks, uh, security, and uh, management as well, or leadership, these are all very interesting. So no surprise for me, but uh, I just gather all information to to grow up. <laughs> What was quite new to me was uh, the
6: talks to the people in Silicon Valley and getting their perspective on um, public-private collaborations and um, especially on how leadership can influence uh, or push um, uh, innovation. That was very interesting for me.
1: So you feel more comfortable now that you're back in a Commonwealth country after hanging around the United States for a, a couple of weeks? Oh no, it's
9: great. It's been great being in the US. We we work really closely with them all the time, so it's been um, it's been a fabulous deep dive into um, into their world. But, um, but now coming into Canada is also super special. We work closely with them as well, so uh, for me, it's great. It's it, everything's just a great treat this trip. Mm,
8: I think you never really feel far away from home when you're in such a group of friends like this.
1: What is the future of the of the Australian Navy?
8: The Australian Navy is going through a um, a real redevelopment and reinvigoration of our platforms at the moment. We've got a lot of new shipbuilding happening so it's really exciting time to be in the Australian Defence Force and particularly in the Navy for shipbuilding projects. For an engineer like me it opens up so many opportunities to contribute to to the nation and professionally as an engineer it's a really exciting time.
1: Canada's the middle as you've probably heard of or will hear about it's recapitalizing its fleet but we're doing it much more slowly and more expensively than you you guys are <laughs> so uh we're always wondering what we can learn from the australians now you work in logistics and they they always say that amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics
9: oh that's a great uh that's a great phrase i quite like that sound. yeah it's good yeah. i like that
1: uh so in the course of your career you now the H uh, A assistant chief of staff for logistics operations and plans so that's pretty much everything
9: yeah yeah it's it's um it, it talks about all the, uh, what we call the classes of supply, so everything from food through to fuel, ammunition, spare parts, and for us it's really exciting because just as Australia is transforming its navy and, and the Canadians are doing similar, uh, the Royal Navy is doing exactly the same again, so we're uh, we're transforming the navy back into carrier strike operations. Our mission is to also uh, deploy units, uh, forward presence we're calling it, all around the world, and also to reshape our commando force as well with a you know huge transformation agenda in terms of how can we draw on all this technology that's out there now to do things better more efficiently and actually you know uh, maintain our status as a as a real contending navy and so all of that requires a huge amount of logistic support so it's a really really exciting time to be part of that transformation and the lessons and uh, and the the conversations we've been having as part of this fellowship absolutely play into that space so for me uh, the last two weeks have just been um, an amazing opportunity both in terms of uh, the organizations and the people we've been speaking to but also learning from my fellow officers around the room here who are absolutely unbelievable It's just a hugely humbling process to be part of this.
8: I think the other thing about um, the recapitalisation of the navies is that we're doing it together really. So each country is redeveloping and recapitalizing its navies. But there's so much cooperation between our navies and that it's particularly the navies in the room here, you know, France, the UK, America, Australia, New Zealand and Canada, all in particular, are really working to, together to develop their navies and, and build on the forces that we've got so we can cooperate in the future. So
1: as you've been traveling for the past two weeks, has there been anything that's really been most striking to you, something that really stands out as, well oh, this is something the Americans do really best? Badly, or something the Americans do really well that we should learn from. Because we learn from success and we learn from failure. So I don't want to pick on the Americans, although we've already talked to them so we might as well.
9: I think the uh, the great message that I've taken away from the last two weeks has been um, the importance of alliances. Um, and it doesn't matter whether that's on a national level or between navies or air forces or, or whoever. The common message we are getting wherever we go is the importance of, of alliance and be that equally into the technology space, so the, the commercial, military alliances, everything. Um, that, that, to me, has been a really lovely i'm not surprised but it's just a lovely reinforcement of, of a message i'd hope i suppose in terms of surprise i'd actually play it the other way the the number of times we have surprised people uh, as a community of 11 senior officers who will also happen to be female um, arriving at an organization and we step out of a lift and people go Whoa, uh, because they just <laughs> didn't expect it especially if we're in uniform that that's been interesting
8: i think um Relationships really are the most important thing. Um, I, I don't think we can underestimate that. But my takeaway and learning from the, the fellowship is not just what we're learning here while we're together, but the friendships that we'll form and the real rarity of the depth of the friendships that will last for a really long time. It's what we will learn afterwards when we reach out again and connect. Do you
1: feel now an obligation to stay in the military for another five or ten years so that way you can all be networked for another five or ten years? (laughs) Because if you you retire now, it's like this program you know, those for the private
9: sector? Well, I mean, I, the, the job I'm doing is um, is just such great fun and it's such a privilege that I can't see myself leaving any time soon. But uh, certainly I, I echo absolutely what Rachel's saying, the connections that we've got here. I'll certainly be drawing on them, ladies. I'm just looking around the room now. Uh, <laughs> and, and I absolutely hope that they'll do the same um, if I can help them as well into the future. That will be an uh, absolute pleasure. I think uh, we serve,
8: you know, at, at the pleasure of our chiefs. Okay. And so staying as long as you need to uh, and uh, contributing really well is is fantastic opportunity. But there's nothing lost when great minds like the women in the room here transition into industry. You know, the security community and the defence community is bigger than the defence forces. And that's a really important thing to acknowledge, that we don't do this on our own. And so nothing is lost. And you
1: guys aren't going to disappear. because no. You're obviously excellent at what you do now. You'll, you'll get... Really interesting positions post military mm. as well, I'm sure. Thanks again for coming to the Battle of the Podcast and good luck on the rest of your travels.
11: Thanks so Thank much. You. If Thank listeners you. want to learn more about the fellowship, perhaps apply for the fellowship in the future, you can visit the Peace with the Women Fellowship webpage at halifaxtheforum.org. Great. Thank you very much.
1: This week's peeve is not really a peeve as much as a plug. One of the best things about doing comparative civil-military relations research over the past several years has been that it has allowed me to travel to see the war museums and the memorials around the world. That I've been to uh, the South Korean War Museum, the Australian War Museum. I've been to memorials in Europe uh, with the cemeteries of American and Canadian soldiers. I've been to Vimy. And this summer I went to Normandy, and it was particularly moving to spend some time in the American cemetery at Omaha Beach. It's right on the beach, it's huge, it's so well taken care of. And these experiences really helped me appreciate the fact that the stuff that I talk about often very, very dispassionately involve real human beings and the price that has been paid by people both there that remain at these battlefields and these cemeteries by their families and by their countries that war has a real cost and uh... going to these kinds of places and seeing them in person has a much greater impact so i urge our listeners if they get a chance if they're in europe to go by normandy or go by vimy or if you're in luxembourg uh... there's some nearby war cemeteries from the Battle of the Bulge. Or if you're in Canada, hit the war museum. Or if you're in any uh, country, they'll have war museums of one kind or another. And there's a, they're really meaningful places. They're educational, and they really give you a good sense of what people went through. And I think we all need to appreciate that stuff. Always, but particularly in these difficult times as the world seems to be getting a little more dangerous. Thank you. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.